I uh, welcome you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Jones Charleston Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my pleasure to uh, welcome our guest today, Zainab Tufekci. Very good. <laughs> she thought it was impossible. Um, Zainab is, uh, is interested in technology and in the way it affects people. And I'm not going to try to explain in a technical, scholarly way, what she's thinking about. But I do want to read something briefly from her About Me page on her personal website. In general, I'm interested in sociality in general and how technology fits into it all. I think that as people, we like to imagine ourselves as a solitary lion hunting in the tall grass or a lone cowboy riding into the sunset. In reality, we are deeply social creatures. Ironically, the combination of our sociality and our intelligence means that our best is better than anything else out there in the natural world, and our worst is unimaginably worse. I have always been curious about questions of harm from intended consequences of technological developments rather than just unintended consequences. For example, I wonder about how the rapid pace at which voice recognition, something I think that is very much have any interest in Stephen Jobs' newest product at all, you know that it's big appeal and it's going out the door like hotcakes. It's a very sophisticated and really surprisingly effective voice recognition system. Voice recognition, natural language processing, and diagnostic systems are being developed. How it's, how, and the rapid pace at which they're being developed and how that's going to impact the structure of the labor market in a way like robotics. I think we have just seen the tip of an iceberg in that realm in terms of social consequences. Zainab, welcome to the Shorenstein Center. Thank you very Glad much. Glad to have you. Thank you. Well, um, so some people do read the About Me page. <laughs> 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 it's usually like, okay, now there's going to be an About Me page, and there you go. Um, thank you very much for the kind introduction. I've actually written that a few years ago, and it's been very exciting to be a scholar of um, these technologies, especially this year. It's been an amazing year. But as we were chatting right before um, we came here, a lot of times what happens is some of us start talking about the impacts long before they burst into the scene because we're able to sort of see them happening. And then you see something like the Arab uprisings and the question is where did this all come from? It looks like a big surprise. It looks like something just uh, appeared. Uh, whereas what, it's more like stuff simmering and pressure building and all sorts of new forces being invoked. And then you see this explosion like a tipping point, so to speak. So I want to talk a little bit about how uh, these new technologies are changing the dynamics between um, citizens and state and government and then how that, and then we'll have this long Q&A part, which is great because I think a lot of the questions about this issue are unresolved, very new, mm -hmm. and in fact we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of noticing the impacts. Now to carry on from what you just uh, read, as a lot of people have heard about the Dunbar number, you know, the idea that we can only have so many people's information in our heads at one time that we can have 
you know, approximated to be 150 people. It's actually a very misused number. It's a complicated story. But uh, what uh, Robin Dunbar, who's an anthropologist at Oxford, has uh, postulated quite convincingly is that we have a natural group size in the sense that hum throughout human history, we seem to have lived in groups ranging from 25 to maximum 150 or so before it got too complex for us to handle because there's all these social reciprocal relations. So that's the theory. So it, it, the number isn't really like how many friends you can have. It's more like history of human group size. To me, the most interesting part about that number isn't what it says about our current sort of how many friends or close friends we can have, but the idea and it seems to be correct from our study of you know, current hunter-gatherer societies and everything else we know about humans, is that the idea that we have evolved to live in small groups. Right? We have lived in small groups for most of human history. About this size would be a typical hunter-gatherer group. And this might be the number of people you see pretty much your whole life. You know, you would have some contact. It wasn't completely isolated. Maybe you'd run into other groups. There might be some, you know, depending on which part of the world it was. But this might be uh, your core, you know, sort of relationships that your whole life, even though I barely know any of you. It's kind of weird how much we've moved in terms of in just a couple hundred years, maybe a few thousand years, uh, how different societies we live in. And in such a little group, Things like surveillance organization coordination happen just using our brain, right? We just, we keep track of each other. Uh, you know who's done you favors, you know who lied to you, you know temperaments, you have a lot of reciprocal relationships. There's all sorts of dynamics that go into such a group that um, just do not really translate into the large thing. So with agriculture and everything else, we moved on to this big population life, where we live in cities, we live in, I mean, even like a small-sized town, something you guys might consider small, a couple thousand, is pretty big by standards of the Pleistocene, which is what, where we evolved. So there we go. What does that mean? Uh, what that means is that the problem of coordination, the problem of surveillance, the problem of keeping track, the problem of organizing larger and larger groups is kind of defined our human development, right? The development of states, the development of uh, cities, municipalities. It's basically trying to solve this problem of coordination, problem of surveillance, problem of keeping track of each other. All things we naturally, e not, you know, I don't want to say easily, but we just did using only our brain and our existing social relationships in small groups have to be explicitly organized once you get beyond a certain size. So size really matters. and. You have these structures, right? You have the tribes, you have states. You can just look at history and see all these structures developed to deal with this problem of how do you coordinate? How do you have a division of labor? How do you keep track of people who are misbehaving according to whatever your norms are? How do you evolve your norms? All of that. So all of that is fine. The interesting twist for me in this is that since agriculture and so that we could have bigger uh, populations, bigger, bigger groups. Since then, coordination, surveillance, uh, keeping track of the whole 
has been the privilege of whoever's powerful within that group. Right? So in a small group, it's not anybody's privilege to know who's done what. Because if you've lived in a small place, you know that people will what we call gossip, which is actually a very common, natural human uh, function, is to talk about each other. It's just a very normal thing. You know, it has a pejorative uh, <laughs> meaning to it, but it's like to it for us. But talking about other people and keeping track of them, it's just, that's what people do in all societies. So when, once you get to big societies, you have this issue of how to keep track and how to organize. And for most of human history, I think till the beginning of 21st century, this has been the monopoly of the powerful. If you look at the 20th century, it's been the monopoly, more or less, of the government, of institutions, of uh, more corporations, sort of the, you know, our modern institutions of great power. And I think that might turn out to be a blip in human history because that might just turn out to be the 20th century and we're going to move towards a very different direction because we finally have come back to the kind of technologies that expand these powers <coughs> of coordination, powers of surveillance. In fact, people call it surveillance sometimes to amplify the point that it's not surveillance just from above, but it's surveillance from below too. And coordination in ways that just were not possible is now more and more accessible to everyone. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. I, I look especially at things like the cell phone uh, expansion. It's not an area I particularly study in the sense that I'm not like doing surveys on uh, how many people are getting cell phones. But every time I look at the numbers, I am just so amazed that you know everywhere in the world, from Africa to Middle East, I mean, in the Middle East, it's basically almost 100% uh, in cities. Everybody from the fruit vendor to uh, just your taxi driver, because it's a survival thing. You need something to keep in track of who's weird, because life's not very predictable. And th th these cell phones are increasingly somehow connected to the broader digital networks, either through text messaging or their smartphones. They increasingly have um, cameras and various other capabilities. And for the first time, and I've been witnessing this now, through social media, there are ways to organize things that just weren't possible. There are ways to keep track of the powerful or what's going on elsewhere in ways that just were not accessible to us. And I think we're going to see its impacts in the next 10, 20 years. And I think it's going to have a substantial effect uh, on all kinds of governance. And I don't think it's just going to be the authoritarian states, although I think <coughs> it most threatens them. And I'll go into why it most threatens them, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't also threaten the way things are done in other states. Uh, and we'll see this. So let, let me just sort of do a parenthesis there and explain. For example, the authoritarian states classically depend on a collection of tactics which uh, are divide and conquer and keep cascades from happening. That's kind of what I call it. They call a whack a protest or whack a dissent, which is basically a state is a resource constraint actor. No state has resources to 
control all its citizens all at once by force. There's just not a single state in the world, no matter how totalitarian, you have a million people, you cannot keep a million people by force if they can coordinate all at the same time. I mean, I'm simplifying a little, because there are issues of legitimacy and other things. So authoritarian states have often relied on keeping news of what's happening and isolating protests when they happen to keep their citizens from uniting to oppose uh, the government. And you see, and a lot of people ask, how did you know somebody like Gaddafi stay in power for 40 years? Well, someone like that can stay in power if he can create, or his little you know regime can create, oligopoly can create, it's called the collective action problem in which there's a problem which could be solved if everybody cooperated, but nobody wants to take the first step because there's a high cost for whoever goes first. Um, now let me give, I, I, I've been giving this example, but I think I should change this, but let me give this one anyway. So let's say that everybody's thinking Bush is really boring. Uh, I really wish I hadn't come here. Man, I'm hungry. But nobody's saying a thing, right? Because who's going to be the first to get up and say this? Uh, but if everybody thought this, and if everybody had the Twitter back channel or something, and somebody started saying, you know what, this really isn't better than lunch. <laughs> but you see, without that kind of back channel, I could probably drone on for an hour without, you know, and you'd be like trying to keep yourself stay awake. I, I, I'm half making this up. You know, I've been in talks like that where I keep wishing somebody, please, you know, somebody get up. And, but you don't want to be the first because it's, you know, what if you're the only one? In fact, political scientists call this pluralistic ignorance where everybody's publicly pretending something but privately has another view. It's like, you know, like all your students pretending to be awake but they're just kind of, there's zombies. Yeah, I don't know if you taught an 8 a.m. class to undergrads. For them, 11 a.m. is early. So if you teach an 8 a.m. class, you have like rows of pretending to be awake kids. But pluralistic ignorance because they're all pretending so you think your neighbor's awake too. It's a sort of a skill you master, I think, just to have your eyes open. So pluralistic ignorance is a key factor in keeping <coughs> unpopular regimes uh, in power. In fact, I'm just reading a really nice book now by Charles Kurzman about the Iranian Revolution, the first 1979 one. And it turns out this kind of assessing viability of will you go to the street, will you go to the street, will you go to the street, was this key cascade in just a few weeks because the regime was quite unpopular, and like the current authoritarian regimes, which are crumbling, had been in power for 40 years. But it was very hard to coordinate to all go out at once. And once it started, um, in the way he tells the story is that everybody wanted to talk to everybody else. You know, you get in a cab and say, you know, are you protesting? And you go to your hairdresser and say, Let's try to figure out everybody's political thing. And that's kind of hard to do, but when it can happen, it can just unleash floods. In the Middle Eastern context, uh, social media has played that role, I believe. Uh, I'm not saying it's the only factor, obviously. And in fact, my thesis is that these regimes were unpopular for a long time. So the dissent was relatively invariant. I mean, I would argue that these regimes had been unpopular for a long time. So to say that they're unpopular, yeah, they were unpopular for a while. So this is not really the factor that I think was by itself enough because it was they've also remained in power in 40 years. In fact, my question is more like not 
why did they go down in 2011, but why didn't they go down in 09 or 08 or 07 or, you know, it just, I, I see no indication that they were a lot more popular even 10 years ago. Yes, you know, it might have varied. And I think what social media did contribute causally to this crumbling through multiple mechanisms. Uh, and not again, not in creating the dissent. The dissent was already there. Not in creating the sort of the bravery you witness, because you see this everywhere in the world. People do this in the Middle East repeatedly and elsewhere. Is that people will take a lot of risks for their freedom and face uh, potential death and um, jail, torture. So that's not unique. But what you do have is a mechanism that allowed everyone to overcome this pluralistic ignorance fairly quickly. Now, of course, it's complicated, because once Tunisia happened, that became a demonstration for Egypt. So for Egyptians, it wasn't just that they could all you know, look at Facebook uh, to see what was going on with their friends and neighbors, but they could look to Tunisia. But as one sort of Egyptian activist told me, there was an invitation to a revolution to which you replied, yes, I will be there, I will be there. And when about 300,000 people do that in an autocracy, you know what, that's a big deal. Because yes, there is surveillance by the government, but what are you going to do with 300,000 people? What are you going to do? I mean, you cannot just arrest them. And I can talk into the sort of, yes, you can arrest the leaders, but there's a lot of evidence that leadership in these networks is pretty flexible. You can arrest the leaders, but then other people pop up because it's a lot of times leaders are just highly visible without necessarily being the key political people the way traditional leaders are. Like if you take them out, the whole party crumbles leaders. Whereas these movements tend to have leaders, but I think they tend to be more interchangeable, which is a working hypothesis. Feel free to challenge me. Everything I'm saying, I'm health also questioning because these are so recent things. Let me just sort of uh, be, make that clear. And one of the things that really contributed to the uh, sort of the dissent has been in the region, in the Middle East region, there has been a steady stream of videos. I think YouTube is like the most <coughs> important news site in the world right now. Um, videos of torture, videos of abuse, videos of misconduct. So there has been this amazing exposure of misconduct in ways that weren't possible uh, before. So this is what I mean by the governments and the relationship between citizen governments changing. Now, uh, I, I want to sort of bring it, I'm just going to pull up my notes. Uh, I want to bring it back to the current Occupy Wall Street movement a little bit, but before that I want to emphasize that it's not, I don't want to sound like it's all good. What I do mean is that it's all more participation, but there is no guarantee that more participation necessarily includes more democracy or more this or more that. More participation, whatever is on the ground, there will be more of it. And there are traditions of, um, there's, there's certain traditional gatekeeping functions that are being eroded and lost. And depending on your view, you might, on the one hand, celebrate this because gatekeeping often keeps out less powerful out of the sort of the public sphere in ways. But on the other hand, I'll give you an example that I'm very clearly, uh, I can talk clearly, uh, I think the sort of anti-vaccination campaigns have done real damage. Uh, I, I'm 
study after study has refuted the premise, but vaccination rates around the world are going down. I'm, I'm now scared because in Turkey, too, the rumors are flying, which is like crazy. Because uh, you already have the struggle to keep up the vaccination. The last thing you need uh, is this anti-vaccination campaign. And I think that campaign would have had a much harder time without social media, frankly, because gatekeepers would have kept that out. But they may have also kept out other things. You see, so it's a double-edged sword. When you had the 1996 Telecommunication <coughs> Act, there's no coverage of it in media. Uh, there's studies of it. They just didn't cover it. Well, because, oops, they're right. Media. right. Yes, there were no coverage of it in big media <laughs> because, you know, they're writing the law, basically. And do you really want to cover it just when you are really involved in writing it? They kind of ignored it. So you wouldn't have that. So gatekeepers filter stuff that you can argue is in, a, in ways that are uh, not beneficial for the public sphere, but in other ways, if the floodgates are open, sometimes in some situations, if there's ethnic polarization, it can, social media can make it worse because gatekeepers will keep certain, you know, if you've got this tension and you've got sort of the public sphere controlled, it can all become unleashed in negative ways. I don't want to say this is the only dynamic in Bahrain, but it's part of what's happening in Bahrain, for example, is that the online discussion has degenerated uh, greatly. And uh, so that's sort of this kind of <coughs> surveillance of the powerful and coordination are very important. Now, one point. I want to call your attention to the fact that someone just walked out. Yeah. And nobody else did. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I couldn't have paid you for a better segue. <laughs> the next point I was going to make is that the focusers are very important because it's not enough for someone to just walk out. Al Jazeera, in this case, you also needs to. Talk about it. <laughs> this is exactly. I really. I mean, we should. We should go on the road. <laughs> this is perfect because what happens is, in this kind of arrow of fragmented attention, it's not that the focusing institutions are powerless. They're in fact even more powerful because it's harder to get people to focus, and that is why Al Jazeera is such a key dynamic. And without it. This whole thing would not have happened the same way because Al Jazeera goes into 24-7 coverage mode when it does when it chooses to over uprisings and that completely affects the dynamics because otherwise there's stuff going on everywhere in the world. And there are people walking out where nobody notices until somebody announces it, right? So it's really, and this is why things like how does Twitter, how does Twitter determine trending topics? This is a political question. Because trending topics is what concentrates our attention. And that's why a lot of Occupy Wall Street protesters have been upset about the possibility, which it turns out to be a lot more complicated. Twitter's not censoring it, but its algorithm doesn't favor simmering movements. It favors like quick spikes. Uh, so that's what's happening. That's why Occupy Wall Street doesn't trend. But this is very important because that algorithmic choice is what influences what gets covered. So you have all sorts of social choices being built into these platforms. And that's why somebody, this is what I, I say Al Jazeera, uh, Twitter's trending topics, and Andy Carbon, who gave a talk here, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, and who's a friend, who curates, anchors sort of coverage of the uprisings in the Middle East. Like, they have in common is that they're focusers. 
And when he chose not to cover Occupy Wall Street because he doesn't do non-Middle East, people were upset with him from the Occupy Wall Street movement because they had lost a focuser, right? So that focus effect is very important. And if you, I've seen studies, the sort of people looking at the media coverage, which show that the Occupy Wall Street coverage peaked after there was video of police macing a couple mm -hmm. of young women in an orange netting, which clearly looked out of line. So the video looked like there was an out of line uh, act by whoever did the some police sergeant who did it, whose name was later Paul Shannon, I don't know if it was true. But anyway, it, it provoked a lot of sort of uh, indignation, which then created a lot more news coverage. You see, <coughs> the cycle, this is the same cycle. I'm not saying we're about to, you know, it's obviously the dynamics are very different, but this is the same cycle of citizen journalism and Al Jazeera and exposure of stuff that you see there um, that you see in the Middle East with a lot of differences. So this is sort of, it'll be very interesting. I think 20th century kind of just ended. This is how I view it. I think 20th century ended like right about now. Uh, and it's a new century. And we're going to go back to some of the ways of the small group, some of the capabilities of the small group, technologically enhanced, but in a big, big world with lots of big, big problems. Uh, and I gotta say just in time because a friend of mine said the kind of problems we face you know, sort of global warming, climate change, ecological crisis, resource depletion. It's as if some, you know, Martian designed a problem humans are bad at solving, right? They're multi-level complex, involve collective action dilemmas. You know, it's hard to imagine problems which would be harder to solve for humanity, uh, <laughs> the ones we're facing right about now. So I think it's, you know, just good that we are getting these new tools, but I have to cons think about how do you design them? Because I talked about the Twitter algorithm. How do you design them? Because all these algorithms have so much consequence built into them as they're being designed, because they're so new, so that it leads to a positive uh, future. I'm not necessarily saying this future or that future, but one in which we're better equipped to make choices and face all these challenges. And I'll just stop there and continue with that. I have the first question, then I will we'll open it first to students and then to uh, anyone. Um, I want to have you switch gears slightly. You mentioned privacy in passing, but I'd like you to, if you would, focus on that for a moment. As I understand what you're saying, privacy was something that there was very little concept of in a world in which everybody lived in groups like this. One, is privacy, <coughs> our sense of privacy, something that was the creature of um, living in cities and big groups? I mean, is that something that was born of that? And two, Right now, people, one of the things people, a lot of people anyway, are very concerned about is, is privacy, what you could call in the realm of privacy. Is there going to be any privacy? And how much privacy are you willing to give up for the sake of being part of a larger community? And how much is society damaged if you give it up or if you don't give it up? I mean. Okay, so uh, I, I want to say in twenty-five words. In twenty-five, in one hundred and forty characters, my uh, they have tweet not one now in uh, Egypt where you can only talk for one hundred and forty seconds, uh, <laughs> and you can retweet like this. So a um, couple of things. Yes, in small communities you had different norms of privacy, but they went 
it's in a particular context which allowed for that to be bearable. I'm not saying it was always good, but there were ways of say, saving face or accepting people or knowing somebody had transgressed, but he was still, you know, Bob's kid, so we're gonna take care of him. There was all sorts of community norms that allowed both for some privacy of a different kind maybe, but also for functioning of that community even as you couldn't really keep secrets the same way. I'll give you an example that's devastating. A lot of rural communities uh, is topics. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, probably not. You're in Boston, but it is a big, big deal in rural communities. It's a small town forum, discussion board. So think of all, you know, little, and I've heard this, I've um, been hearing stories, uh, talks with a reporter, even Kentucky, right? So here's how it goes. You have a forum, you have a town of 1,000 people, and everybody kind of knows each other, but there are ways of existing together. So people do know certain things, but they can allow for that to be. Whereas somebody that goes and posts the topics, the woman who works at Wendy's is having an affair with the, one of the policemen. Now there are three women who work at Wendy's and two cops, right, in the town. So you immediately know who that is. The damage that does is, it's not like it was a secret, but there were ways of ignoring it, the way you ignore a you know, rude relative sometimes, or the way you kind of can ignore all sorts of social folk. So it went within a different kind of norm. So you, I, 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 so I, I'd argue against the notion that we're losing privacy in the same kind of way. It was a different setting with appropriate norms. Plus, you live with those people your whole life. So even if you learn something about them, you kind of had to keep it within the community. So the consequences, while real, it could be oppressive, weren't like here, where um, Daniel Solov gives this example in his book of the dog poop girl, Korean girl, who was caught in a video because her dog had um, uh, on the subway in Korea and she refused to clean it up, which is a rude thing to do, but her life is effectively ruined. She had to leave the country. Now I'm not, a pr because they identified her, they harassed her, she just was, she was fired from her job or had to quit, and she can't live in the country anymore. Now this is not a small transgression. It's, I mean, it's not a great thing not to clean up after your dog, but it's just really, the punishment of your life. Whereas if she had been in a small community, maybe people would have gotten mad at her, but she would have still been embedded in those relationships in a way we don't see that. So I, I, I so what I'm arguing is, it's not exactly appropriate to compare because they have built an infrastructure of norms that let them survive in that thing. Now the second thing is, I think the privacy situation is a perfect example of a tragedy of the commons because it's not terribly horrible for me to give up some privacy in return for X, Y, or Z. Um, and in fact, I probably don't care very much, but I'm an established, I, mean, I have a job, <coughs> I, I'm an adult, I don't really have, uh, I have a lot more power than uh, say a youngster just starting out. But if everybody does, right, even though at every one point it might not be that big a deal to give up one piece of information, but if everybody gives up a piece of information and then you have these centralized databases, which are at the moment uh, pretty much the monopoly of, again, powerful institutions, that I think you have a serious consequence. And I, uh, 
Uh, a lot because he has this argument that being public has its benefits, and absolutely, I mean, I'm very public myself. But it comes from, for me and for him, it comes from a position of privilege, individual privilege, that we can do this. And the real question is is it beneficial for me as a person to be public in this way? The question is what if everybody is exposed at an early <coughs> stage? powerful institutions. And the thing I fear, for example, is uh, low-level filtering of people from employment. I hear again and again and again of kids, you know, young adults, let's not call them kids, my college students, facing issues at work because of a particular posting. And I can really imagine that somebody who's not very careful, or it's very hard to be careful because everyone's taking pictures of you everywhere you go. Uh, not being hired for that first, say, congressional internship that's going to launch their political career. I can imagine people being filtered out at the very, very low level in ways that you'd never notice. But in 30 years, we might just have, you know, a huge consequence because the people who get into, say, those, you know, initial important first step jobs might be the ones who are either savvy about their online presence, which also comes with privilege, who are lying, who know how to hide, uh, who are conformists, you know, who've never done anything, you never color outside the line, outside the lines, which is probably not what you want either. Uh, so I think there might be all these long-term, <coughs> pretty negative consequences of this level of exposure because it's not situated within a context of keeping this in check. You know, there are no laws that says employers can't check on you. There are no laws that says college boards can't check on you. And they do all the time, even though there are laws that say they can't, for example, even though they know your race, they can't, they're supposed to not use that because they can, you know, if they're interviewing you. But we don't have anything of the sort. So, yeah, it's, we're losing privacy. I don't think it's very voluntary in the sense that people are considering the consequences. There really needs to be a much better discussion of it and one a discussion that correctly keeps a privilege in the discussion because in like sort of the more privileged high schools the counselors are instructing kids to clean up their Facebook page and kids are creating double you know one with a nickname and one for the college board in which they help you know blind people cross the road <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you know they're having these you know fake ones which they this is like somebody helping you write your college essay. It's reproducing certain kinds of privilege. And I think that's going to really play out over the long run. So it's, I, I'm pretty worried about that topic. But it's, you know. Okay, students, please. Yes. All right, so um, thank you for your talk. Um, I noticed it was mostly from the perspective of the citizen or the individual, um, this online presence. But I don't think enough has been said about the perspective of the state. Uh, particularly in, in relation to the Arab Spring, and two countries come to mind. The first is, is Bahrain, which is, which is where I'm from, where Twitter was used um, to track activists, to spread propaganda, and for a lot of negative purposes. Syria is the other example, where Twitter was used to arrest. I mean, I think Facebook and Twitter were both banned in Syria, um, but around the time of the uprisings, they were allowed not so that people could organize, but so that the state could actually track activists. And uh, it led to a huge problem. So I think 
that to say that you know the 20th century has come to an end and that there is this dem democratization now um, of of of, um, of the sphere, I think is is not entirely accurate. I think what we have instead is the struggle between citizen and state moving online, not always to the benefit of the citizen. So I'd be I'd be curious to hear. Well, let me address that. I mean, that's actually a pretty uh, two good points there. And uh, in the case of Syria, uh, what's happening is I just talked to a few Syrian. Uh, Actives. What's happening is the digital realm is basically not useful at all for organizing because they had, didn't have an activist dissident network the way Egypt and Tunisia did, which is what they allowed them to use these tools. If you don't have it and then all of a sudden you spring up when there's already dissent, it just they don't trust. It's so heavily infiltrated. They basically said mm -hmm. that they cannot use it to organize at all. The only thing they're doing, there are two things they're doing in Syria, is that they're sneaking out the videos of what's happening. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys are following it, but there's video after video after video every day, nonstop, just being smuggled. Sometimes flash drives, sometimes, you know, sort of satellite phones, cell phones, before the Jordanian Turkey border, whichever they're close to. Uh, so it does have that impact. It doesn't solve, it doesn't like create the situation in which citizenry can automatically overcome repression, depends on the level of repression obviously. Uh, and in the case of Syria, there already was like, they didn't have it to begin with. So it's not really a, the way Egypt organized through social media, they didn't really do it. And I think the Syrian uprising is more an example of them looking at the rest of the region and using that as a demonstration. Now, I personally still think that not because um, of social media, but because of the dynamics in the region, I think um, Syria as a durable, stable, authoritarian regime um, is going to not stay that way for long. I, I mean, I can't tell you next year. I may be wrong. I, I, uh, I, I think, you know, because they were stable for decades, right? You last had the, in the 80s, and they have, um, so I think for them, too, an era is over, not just because of social media, but, you know, this example, uh, China is another complicated case. I'm not talking about it at all because it's so complicated here. Um, now, uh, so, I mean, you see what I'm saying? It wasn't really, they didn't really organize through the internet. Uh, and the surveillance was always there. So one point there, though, and I hear this a lot, that the government can use surveillance. The government's in the region, I mean, Syrian Muhabarat, it's infamous for amazing levels of surveillance. You know, everybody tells their stories of, I forgot my wallet and the police gave it back to me. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's horrible. It's really horrible. So social media doesn't bring something new there. And I think the balance there is how widespread the dissent is. If you're a minority, I think the internet surveillance can really work against you if you're a small dissident group, if you're a minority group, uh, because then the state can have the resources to track you. It's also different from the West in the sense in the West that you can slowly build, whereas in a place like Syria, you either have to be like, go very big all at once. If it's slow, then you can be in trouble. So that's sort of my, how it works, is like if you can outnumber them very quickly, it works in the dissidents' favor, otherwise it works in the state's favor. If you're sort of small and rise your head, then they can overwhelm you. The case of Bahrain is really, I mean, I'm just so, I, I have friends there, 
I think it's a really difficult one because they have, you guys have uh, too many powerful interests aligned against sort of the movement. The U.S. has the you know, its fleet there, Saudi Arabia has all this interest, it's a small country. And in such a case, I think it's really overdetermined in the sense that the whole geopolitics of the region is coming down very hard on a very small country. So your examples are examples of how these happen in the greater context, which I completely accept. Uh, and Phil Howard has this great book, if you guys haven't read it, uh, Digital Origins of Dictatorship, where he, it's 2010, so it's pre-these events, but basically what he finds is in every state, besides the oil-rich Gulf states, you have a correlation between some level of democratic push and uh, citizen media except the Gulf states because of the particular situation. So, you know, great complications to the story. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to ask um, if you could maybe contrast the, uh, talking about the revolutions in the Arab Spring with sort of the last rounds that we saw, the color <coughs> revolutions, only a few years prior, but effectively pre-social media, I think. Um, and, you know, but there, similarly, again, we saw a seemingly connected in time uh, round of one revolution after another, in which they were obviously taking some inspiration from one another. We saw the same thing in the Arab Spring, but the added uh, factor was social media. Um, is it useful to look at, at these two kinds of rounds, waves, uh, and examine them as case studies to see what social truly sure. did? Sure. I mean, I, I'll give you, like, a, I, I, the one I studied more uh, is the Iranian one, which is the obvious, you know, sort of question. Uh, so, on the one hand, it's a failure in the sense that uh, it seems like an election was either stolen or almost stolen, pretty close. You know, there's a good case that, uh, at least it wasn't transparently and openly uh, conducted. But the sort of the effort to do anything about it fails. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, person after person from the region told me that that's what got them thinking about how to use social media. So I want to think about failure as a different thing, more like a sort of historical wave. It doesn't mean every attempt succeeds. It just means there's a historical wave, and some of them hit a wall, and some of them don't. Um, and in the case of Iran, and in the case of, say, Bahrain, where there's also ethnic uh, tensions, what you see is that it's not by itself. You know, Iranian government has a base in its population, and there's no sort of denying that. They might have won the election, too. I mean, if they counted honestly, it's possible. It's, they're not, you know, they're not uh, Qaddafi. Let me put it this way. It's a very different situation, and uh, sometimes because of U.S. foreign policy, they get to be made the boogeyman, and they have a lot of problems, but they have a popular base. Um, so, in and I think for for that case, what I look at it in terms of uh, when I see the Iranian Revolution is that it was the first attempt in the region by actually the most wired country almost in the region, most advanced with a very sort of vibrant blogosphere. And it was also sort of being early sometimes can work against you. Uh, it, and it was also not politically strong enough to overcome that. So I see the Iranian revolution as the first step in the wave rather than it failed. Because so many people have looked at it and thought, we can get our own message out 
it was the first time that really, sort of in the Middle East, you saw the sort of runaround government surveillance, this effectively with all the videos uh, that came out. You can even look at Burma, another early example, 2006, where they did this, but it was, yeah. Uh, so I think the sort of the story is going to be written better in like 10 years or so, where we'll, we'll see like the 1848 revolutions, if you sort of follow them, it's actually not that quick. You know, it takes this sort of few years of a wave. And in fact, one thing people don't necessarily know about those revolutions is that they were really, I mean, how did they spread? Right? This is 1848, there's no, it, well, they spread as the railroad and the telegraph has spread. So there too, Railroad carried the newspapers and the leaflets and the telegraph carried the news. So the communication infrastructure there to play the key role. Now, I don't really have predictions for Iran because, again, the government has a base and it's a, it has its own complicated politics. Uh, but I see it as part of the sort of the, not the Arab Spring, because they're not Arabs, but part of this attempt um, by well, the way I call it is the Middle East, I think the era of the subjects is over. People really want to step into the citizenship rather than being subjects. And this is kind of, uh, it's, I mean, it's tragic and sad in one way, right? Because it's 21st century on the one hand, and this is a 19th century problem, not being subjects, being citizens. Uh, but it's, this is what uh, I, I think it's part of. Yeah. I was going to ask about Iran. Yeah, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Um, so, of course, this is fascinating, very interesting um, stuff. I, I did want, I guess there's some ways to follow on to this, but, um, well, first, just a comment about the, the, this uh, notion of, of, uh, of uh, going back to the small group. You know, just observation is that through history, that is to say, that part of the portion of human, you know, since, since we evolved, that we remember in story, which is how we usually think of history, that is for the last few thousand years. We've lived in large groups. Right. And so there's a lot of adaptive capacity uh, there in culture that has been layered onto whatever biological. And that's relevant because it does seem to me, I'm sort of pushing a little bit of that. There's a tendency to, to imagine that this is all new and that there, you know, there's a big break and now we're going back to something else, et cetera. And I, it, it does seem to me that there's a danger of underestimating, you, and, you, and you sort of said this in, in some of your comments, the, the, the creative capacity of human beings to communicate fairly rapidly through other mean, means other than social media. Um, and that uh, broadsides, telegraph, newspapers, gossip, you know, we, we've had cassette tapes, or we've had a variety of technologies, and I, I guess I, what, I, what I'd be curious to hear a little bit more of is exactly what you think is new. Right. And, and, and maybe even more particularly, you, you've emphasized what might be thought of as, as the assurance problem, that is to say situations that are rife, where we all want to revolt, but all, what we're waiting for is to see somebody make the first move, and as soon as we see that, it becomes expedient. But, there are a lot of other things that have to happen for collective action to occur. And so I'm curious of what things does the new media really make a difference on and what things is it really less important? Now, I should say I'm simplifying everything I say and kind of sort of forward-leaning, so to speak, because that's what generates the conversation. Sure, but yeah. as soon as you look at something, it's more complicated. Uh, so 
first question, uh, the capacity of human beings to adapt, absolutely, we're, I, I'm totally with you there. But on the other hand, something like, just give you an example of how it does sort of matter, is that a lot of the sort of the activist network that have sprung up across the region, they know each other in person. There are not that many of them, and they know each other in person. And there are certain key meetings where they met, like everybody talks about the 2009 Arab bloc meeting, right? There's like 30, 40 of them. And then there is the Re Republica in Berlin. And you know, there's these few things where they came face to face, which was incredibly important when stuff started happening because they were like, I trust this person. I mean, it kind of kept in. So there are all sorts of these small dynamics that I see among sort of the people who were key hubs to this thing. So uh, it's very interesting how that works back and forth. Um, what's different? None of the tools you mentioned, like the cassette tape, the leaflet, all of that, allow for instantaneous, almost instantaneous organization of cascades. Uh, what happens is they sometimes happen. You know, sometimes everybody does gather at, you know, square, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the way that it can now be organized interactively, because yes, you can distribute leaflets, but I mean, I have this like huge five-dimensional chart in my head, I'm trying to still figure out how to explain mm -hmm. their different capacities, is that these technologies have aspects of different dimensions. So one of them is whether they're synchronous or asynchronous, right? Real time versus can you wait a little while? And there's actually not either or, like Twitter's kind of in the middle. It makes no sense days after if you go to somebody's Twitter feed, but you can see it a few hours after. SMS is almost instantaneous. Uh, telephone is synchronous, but you have to be there on the other end. So just think of it as this. Now, on the other hand, they have a public-private dimension. Like BlackBerry Messenger is private, but can have groups, whereas Twitter is all public. And then they have a dimension of one-to-one to many-to-many, -one to -many, right? You just sort of like phone, you talk to one person, and then you talk to, say on Twitter, it's like almost many-to-many. -many. What happens that's very interesting is when ecology fills out. So you have some technology at many, many, many points. Because the ones you're talking about, like leaflet, if you're leafletting in an autocracy, it's a synchronous device. You have to leaflet right there because they will Pop it all up in one hour, you know. So it's a synchronous device, and it's kind of like one to many, right? Uh, the radio cassette is asynchronous. <coughs> it's kind of like one to one to one to one. So there are all these things. So they fill parts of this ecology of the multiple dimensions. But what I think that has happened in the past few years is that because now we have these digital technologies, all sorts of other moments in the ecology are filling out. So you that allows for many different kinds of action to happen. That's why, for example, in the UK riots, the BlackBerry Messenger was so, <coughs> it appears, used by the people who were involved in some of the looting because it's a public, many-to-many, semi-synchronous thing. And if you are looting, that's useful, whereas if you have a political goal, you want the public one because you have a political message, right? So you see what I'm saying? So this is allowing people, because the ecology is filled, they're using Twitter in the Middle East to, as a bridge to journalists and to coordinate protests. I see two uses. I see like, sometimes like the, you know, I don't know if you watch the Masfera, uh, there was a Christian cops who were in Egypt were marching and the army, uh, 
ran over dozens of people and shot at them from what it seems. I watched this happen on my Twitter timeline because so many people I knew were at the, uh, and I saw them coordinating. They were like, okay, now we're all gonna go there and this is happening. And then when the deaths came, they're like, okay, we're all going to the morgue to document what happened because they wanted to document that these people had been crushed and blah, blah, blah. So you see this real-time coordination and a bridge to activists. But then they set up a Facebook page for the public information. And then there's an attempt to influence big media. You see what I'm saying? So since there's so many parts of the ecology are filled, there are ways in which people can self-organize, which would not have been easy. It would have been possible. And the one last difference there is that the speed really matters. Because if you're organizing slowly, they can pick you up one by one, which is kind of, you know, if you're slow, you, they can, but if you're fast, they cannot the same way. So the fact that these things are speedier, I think doesn't just make the same thing happen faster, it makes a different kind of thing happen because you get uh, the Occupy Wall Street protest, the Global Day was organized literally within a few days. I mean, you can organize a global protest within a few days. <laughs> Pretty striking to me. So yes, continuation on the one hand, but... Yes. Uh, I'd like to add some background to your uh, Korean poop girl story. Uh, in China, uh, that um, activity uh, to report is called uh, human flesh, which you may want to Google the term, which is sort of a form of, uh, of national vigilantism using the internet and available uh, images uh, uh, that either people are taking or they get from public sources. Uh, in regards to uh, privacy, particularly in the United States, it appears to be a uh, moving target in order to try to protect uh, under particularly the Fourth Amendment and a reasonable expectation of privacy or statutes which are, tend to be related to particular technology. It appears to me that we need sort of a privacy protection uh, that is more general uh, and not tied to any particular technology. What do you think, uh, would we have better privacy protection if in fact we had an explicit constitutional amendment and that the 40 states would also have an explicit right in their state constitution. I mean, uh, this, is, this is an excellent question. Because see, what happened was, let me just sort of add one thing to it. When privacy protections first started becoming legal, uh, there wasn't even a cassette recording tape. So if FBI was listening to you, they have to write very fast. I'm not kidding. They would plug into the phone, <coughs> and they would be just writing very fast, because they couldn't record in real. There was no recording technology. And in fact, like the first sort of legal protections, I guess, uh, certain technological developments which uh, come in response to the development of the photograph which allowed for invasion of privacy in ways that just well, because if something happened it was kind of embarrassing well it just happened right and then it went but if there's a picture of it that's a very different ball game so, so these what happened is every new technology introduced new threats and up until the 70s the government kept up so if the telephone became invaded in, uh, and then like uh, the telephone became widespread, you got wiretapping laws. You got sort of, so the spirit of the privacy protections kind of started to, you, something new would come up and it would kind of be included. And then the balance of power, I think, shifted. 
And what has happened is this erosion of privacy by letting the new technologies not be enveloped in <coughs> the principles of privacy protection. So when email came up, instead of saying, well, this is like the phone and we should expand the same protections, the government with the, uh, and I think the government's thinking, oh great, we can catch criminals or whatever they're thinking. You know, there's always a story to why it's good. Uh, and corporations might be thinking, oh great, this is, this is what I, you know. But in the end, what happens is instead of invoking the same principles, the same concept, right? It's like the telephone. It just receded uh, out of that control. Now, how to handle that? is a big problem. There are people arguing for some sort of civil rights kind of basis where you have, you know, a little more like European where you have a right to privacy, you can go to court. Um, probably some sort of constitutional amendment. I mean, it's such a, you know, the realistic part of me thinks would this happen, but on the other hand, maybe it should. Um, I don't. I, I mean, I don't have an answer. But what does need to happen is the principles that apply to at least the telephone, right? I mean, it wasn't perfect. Uh, and if you picked up the phone and somebody said, "If you don't want the government to listen, don't talk on the phone," you'd be like, "No, talking on the phone is a well." Okay, now maybe the government does listen a little bit now. But let me know. But at least this was not the norm, right? You were you were able to you were supposed to be able to expect to use your phone without a little disclaimer. And it should at least apply to online world. You shouldn't have to have a disclaimer saying, well, then don't use it, because that's ridiculous. This is the 21st century. It's not reasonable to tell people to get off the internet if they don't want their basic rights violated, because to get on the internet itself is a basic right. So what? I, I, I'm supposed to pick between one basic right, which is to be a citizen in this world, and another basic right, which is to have a certain level of protection of my individual acts. But I don't have an answer. It's, we have uh, we have one of our one of our uh, scholars who's not here unfortunately today named Nico Mailey. He makes the argument, and this was in the context of WikiLeaks, that there probably will be no secrets, no realistic expectation of secrecy or privacy. If you have anything digital in digital form, it will be something that someone with enough skill, you know, a fair number of people would be able to. To mount that skill, they can find it out. I will argue that this will be isn't going to be colored by privilege. Uh, I mean, it's very hard, for example, to do sociological research on the rich. That's why there's a zillion sociological studies on the poor because you know we can intervene. You know, there's social workers. We tag along with them, and you know we go to their neighborhoods and say we're for your good, whatever. Whereas the rich people, you know, they're like, okay, gated community, bye-bye. Right? Uh, seriously, there's very few sociological studies of elite worlds. And a few that have come out are people who've grown up in that world, and then they write part sociology, part tell-all. Uh, I think it might be something like that, in which the more powerful people might have more means to keep their secrets, uh, or have means to sort of manage this, whereas the less you understand this world, the less you understand the technology, or the less you're warned about it, or the less your parents figure out how to use it, or the less your college counselor at high school warns you. You see, there's going to be all sorts of privilege inflecting how people navigate this, and I think the people who are going to be more exposed will be the people who, for a complicated bunch of reasons, are less able or less competent or have less power. Whereas the more powerful people will be once again, you know, I'm not saying they're going to be immune, 
but probably safer. Say that <clears throat> I have to say that uh, I can't remember one of these brown bag lunches that I have been less inclined to walk out of. <laughs> <laughs>